Welcome back to the Prairie Pod. We are so excited to be here today. Jess, are you excited? I'm so excited. We always start this way. We always talk about how excited we are. We have a wonderful guest today, which is the most exciting part about it. I this know. Is my excited voice. <laughs> so we are joined today by Jeff Sajak and his amazing, excited voice. Jeff, what do you do for the DNR? Mm, I'm what's called an area wildlife manager. I manage public hunting areas in Brown, Redwood, and Renville counties. And with that, I have to do a lot of prairie management, and including seeding and burning and doing all the management activities. So I'm doing whatever Joe Stangle tells me. <laughs> Joe Stangle is his One of my bosses. One yes. of his bosses. It's good. What's, what you, you been somebody? out there on the prairie doing, Jeff, today? We've been picking seed. So, That's pretty awesome. Mm, picking veiny pea and bed straw and lots of showy tick trefoil all over my pants and shirts. You know what? I got that likes to stick to you. But uh, I yeah, I get ready for summer burns too. Looking at sites to get that ready for. When so. you when you're picking prairie seed, so we did an episode where we were talking about all the gear that you can have, and I really want to know: Do you have a milk jug belt that you wear to put your seed in? A milk jug belt. Yeah. You yeah. know, lots of milk jugs around a belt. And then if you, you know, let's say you're picking veiny pea and you see some flocks and you want to make sure you get that, but you don't want to stick it in your Is pocket. Is there a secret camera here that's <laughs> trying to make me laugh at something like that? No. I get a, I get a paper bag usually. <laughs> paper bag or a plastic bucket. So maybe I'm not as high tech as I should be. Well, I, Megan and I are both very envious of the milk jug belt i want one i can drink some milk for make you one, if you want i'm gonna make one for megan for christmas she's getting one wait a minute it was for my birthday oh, why are you shit. trying to delay this now like <laughs> your you birthday. said for my okay. birthday you're gonna be your okay i'm really excited to get my milk jug belt i requested five jugs so that i can okay. be like extra i don't even color coded yeah you said color coded already it's do you have to happen. win a wrestling match to get those like the big belts that they wear on oh. wwe i mean i think you just have to be friends with jess <laughs> Oh, okay. I, mean, I feel like <laughs> easy enough. That's how it's gonna work. It is easy enough. Mm-hmm. Well, I love picking seed. Well, we can get off this topic you, now. Yeah, but I absolutely love it. It's a very addicting process. I was also picking seed this morning and I couldn't stop. I know. See, we've had a lot of chocolate today, so we're extra like ramped up when we're doing the podcast today. So gotcha. I think we're just give you some apologies ahead of time for those of you listening. So we're gonna jump in and we're. The reason why Jeff is here is because he does a lot of restorations and reconstructions. I thought it was because I drew the short straw. You did not draw the short straw, Jeff. You always draw the long straw. There you go. (laughs) Anyway. So in today's podcast, we're going to talk about establishment phase management. What is that? So basically, all we're covering, just for reference, is basically the moment that you stop planting, whatever planting method you use, ground zero, that moment until three years okay. is what we're saying. So Usually I get done seeding, we go get coffee. It's usually <laughs> cold out in the fall. That's the next thing that happens. You so said as soon as the seed was done. As soon as the seed was done. I'm taking it literally. Yes. It's good. This is, see, this is why we like to introduce you to a variety of managers so you can just learn different perspectives and get a feel for how we all work a little bit differently. 
So we're going to move through establishment phase and we're going to cover some of the choices you might have. And Jeff, if you don't know Jeff, he's got some strong opinions about things that he... No, not me. <laughs> definitely yeah. you. Yes, about you things that he thinks you should do and other things that not. And we'll try to provide a point counterpoint. Sound good, Jeff? That sounds great. Sound great, Jeff? Mm, that's okay. That's okay. I like that you are trying to temper our enthusiasm by just kind of hey, being Hey, I the... said I am, into, for me, this is enthusiastic. You're the Eeyore to our Pooh and Piglet. We're gonna, there you go. We're going to break. More like Tigger, I would say. <laughs> Bouncing all over. We are definitely that way today. All right, so Prairie Establishment, jumping in here. This happens, like we said, you know, basically from point zero to years two to three. And usually it involves some type of, it, could, it can involve some type of mowing or spot spraying. And the goal here is that you're trying to figure out how you're going to reduce shade competition and invasive weeds. So what we want to do is make sure that our natives are always dominant. Like that's the goal, is that we want to make sure that we set us up. So in season two, we're going to talk about long-term management. So I don't want people to be confused. This is not long-term management. So we're not going to cover the things that you do long-term, you know, years four to five and onward to make sure you get disturbance into your prairies. Because we all know, without disturbance, you don't have a prairie. Jess, why are you looking at me crazy? Well, let's talk about that term disturbance. Oh, good. A little bit. What, is it, what does disturbance mean to you? Because disturbance has a very negative That's when Brian Schultz takes away my donuts. It's very disturbing. It's disturbing. Right. <laughs> exactly. You don't want to leave donuts around, Brian. No. <laughs> We don't want to disturb the prairie. I mean, in some ways, what do, what do you mean by disturbance? Elaborate on that. Yeah, bit. we'll talk about what that means a little bit. So Not what, in reference disturbance to in reference to prairies is actually a good thing. What we really mean mm -hmm. is we're trying to set back succession. So if you don't introduce fire, grazing, mowing, haying, something into your prairie to try to set back your woody encroachment, that's shrubs and trees that come into the prairie, the prairie is going to turn into a forest. This is just normal success. You're altering the vegetative composition by altering which ones are able to be competitive. You do different management regimes, you get different competitive advantages for different species. Exactly. Wonderful. Ultimately, you want to set it back so that you have grasses and forbs. Okay. And what dragon? Yeah. So that's what we mean. So disturbances, you're, you're keeping the prairie from becoming a forest. We want our prairies to be prairies. Mm -hmm. So today, I'm going to stop putting my pen in my mouth. Today, we're focused on the first few years of your prairie's life. Okay, quick refresher for those of you who might not have listened to our Seed Mix podcast episode. So we want to just do a quick refresher here to make sure we're all on the same page. Okay, we don't know what you've done up until this point to establish your prairie. So we're going to make some assumptions. Assuming that you have good diversity in your seed mix, we're assuming this. We're assuming that you fulfilled the gills, you limited your tall grasses, you tried to make sure you had restoration conservative species in there, you tried to make sure that you got even ratios of forbs and grasses in your seed mix, that you did good site prep. We're, we're assuming that these things happened, that you knew your site and you matched your target community with your site soils, moistures, landforms, and topography. And that you made sure that you did something to boost your soil biology. Because we always hear this thing about, oh, well, planting into dead soil is the way to go. You need to have your biology boosted. You need to make sure you got living roots and things going on so that way you get good soil biology and you get good prairie establishment. Okay, moving on. We good? 
We're on the same page? We're on the same page. I feel like mm, I'm on the same page. I didn't page. turn the page, but I think we're you know, both understanding what we're talking about, yes. Okay, good. That's a good overview. We have to we have to assume some level of of goodness here. Yes. Because unless you start with goodness, what you do next. You know. And unless I disagreed with some of that, this wouldn't be a fun podcast. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do have some somewhat different ideas about that, but we'll be we'll be good enough talking about establishment management. <laughs> Exactly. We could spend hours. Okay, so now that you have all this goodness, like Jess was talking about, now you have to make some choices, right? You have to make some decisions. And I'm just going to say it, because those of you who know me, and Jeff is nodding right now, I'm a super... I'm rocking in my chair, I'm, but it's the same. It's the same. I'm a super impatient person. And so when we approach prairies, I think the biggest challenge that we have as land managers and restoration practitioners is to try to be a little more patient when we're trying to decide what to do. Because I think when we get a little too hasty trying to make sure that things are going to be absolutely perfect right away, we might make not the best choice for the prairie. Well, and it's key to know nothing is going to be perfect. You put the same seed mix in the same soil three different years, you're going to get three different results. So if you go out there with a predetermined, it has to look like this, you'll drive yourself nuts because it never does look exactly the same three years in a row. Um, all other things being equal because you're going to have year of effects on how it's going to establish. You're going to get different moisture events, you're going to get different rain events, you're going to get different temperatures, all that good stuff. So you have to be you have to be flexible, not only patient but flexible in what you it looks like because if like I say. If you go out there with one expectation, you don't see it, you might be disappointed in something that's going to actually be just fine for meeting whatever your objectives are. So, um, and I know we, we'll get back to that. I want to comment on the uh, year of establishment. Um, if I look at these ecologically, you know, when these plants would be reproducing in the wild, a lot of them would be doing it in the presence of annual and biennial competition. You know they're going to be having to grow underneath the canopy of these other plants and i think some of the things that have happened the early work on restoration a lot of it was done by agronomists and it has an agronomy type um uh, focus focus to it you know you want to grow one in agronomy you grow one thing you take rid of all the competition that's there and you make it the ideal situation for that one particular crop you're growing well if we're planting these we're going to have 40 to 50 or more different plants that are going to be in there. And my, in my opinion, too, shade is not always a bad thing uh, because it is going to moderate how much moisture loss you get at the soil level. So if you have some small uh, seedlings and you have a very dry situation, you know, yes, you'll have some competition from roots, but you're also going to have that trade off with you're going to have less evaporation and less heat effects down there on the ground. So. I actually have not mowed any of my new seedings for about the last six years. Um, the only time I worry about seeding is when you're walking through there, and if you can't see the ground, you physically can't see the ground, sunlight's not getting there, then you have to not only mow the site, you should get rid of all that thatch that's there, which is the other downside of mowing. You're going to leave a lot of vegetation, dead vegetation, on top of these other plants, and then you've got to deal with that. That's going to suppress them also. I mean, some in a lot of cases, that's going to put more, take away more sunlight than letting them stand there. So, um, and I also, folks that know me, I do like benefits that annual plants have for different species, not only game species, but 
you know, non-game birds migrating as well. So, um, Jeff, I'm stopping of... you. I'm stopping you right here because we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> I'm saying a lot of things, and there are a lot of good things, but I want to make sure we back up and get everybody on the on the same page. You sound like my second grade teacher. I know. It's like, Jeff, you're saying all the good things, but let's just go back to two plus two. Just don't send four. me in the corner like she did. <laughs> I'm that not going to. Jeff, I'm not going to bring up these memories, these traumatic, traumatic memories yes. that you had from your second grade teacher. And feeling... third and fourth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling bad about it already. I'm already feeling bad about it. But I want to back up just a little bit to make sure that we um, get on the same page here. So one caveat that I want to say, you mentioned in agronomic systems, this approach of kind of a monoculture approach of making the best mm. environment for one plant. And I do want to say that that's just one option in an agronomic system, that we're starting to see things with our soil health systems as we move towards if trying you're to at traditional mimic... agronomics. Right. And I just yeah. want to make that point so that there are other agronomic systems out there that are trying to mimic more of a natural situation and look mm. to things like prairie to mm. figure out how they're doing it, how they're thriving, and how they get such good soil organic matter. And that's soil health, and that's a whole topic for another podcast. We'll bring Dave Trauma back and talk all about soil health. <laughs> Just because Dave always wants to be on the podcast. That's Megan's with us. favorite topic, if you haven't figured it out, is soil health. I do. Well, and seed mixes. Just so... favorite topic is obviously not mowing. <laughs> <laughs> no. So before we jump into this, I want to, Jess, you have this great quote here, and I want to make sure that you. Tell us this quote because it kind of gets to the people side of prairie and then we'll jump right back into weeds and then we'll go into mowing. Forbes. They're not weeds. They're Forbes. That's Forbs. what we're going to talk this about. This is exactly uh, what we're going to talk about. Jeff, spoiler alert. So this quote is from Peter Schramm from 1990 and um, in a, a paper published in a conference proceedings and the title is Prairie Restoration, a 25-Year Perspective on Establishment and Management. And I pulled this quote out because I just loved it. The quote is, because new prairie plantings look so messy and unprairie-like, this stage gives a bad impression to the uninitiated. This is a time when prairies are growing down rather than up. So this bad impression to the uninitiated, to me, means requires patience and education so that we understand what's happening in the prairie, that the roots are going down, that the prairie's working. It just takes time. It does take time. It's hard to wait, though. Well, and for the, you know, people that don't like that look, a lot of the mowing comes in. It can be it's cosmetic, and it will look more uniform, more manicured during that time when people don't like that. Let's jump, since you're talking about mowing, let's jump right into mowing, and then we'll circle back to weeds okay. and talk about them. Do you want to just jump, like, so Jeff, you have kind of, there's... Here's the deal with mowing. To mow or not to mow is not. basically the question. And if you are Jeff, the answer is not to mow. Mm. So let's talk about some of the reasons why you don't like mowing and what, you, what you've what you seen with your prairies, and then we'll kind of do a counterpoint. Yeah, the, the main reason I don't like mowing is it's unnecessary. We have a limited number of staff time and, you know, equipment available, so if we're going to be attacking problems, we should probably do things that are actual problems. Noxious weeds, I will have them mow or spray patches of noxious weeds. Um, but in, in most cases, I haven't had any problems with establishment. We have diverse mixtures of plants out in most of these plantings that we've got. Um, and the other big reason I don't like to do that is because those annual 
forbs are like ragweed and lamb's quarters. They're excellent sources of food for migrating songbirds. And if you look at the agricultural landscape of 50 years ago before herbicides and today, that's one of the main components that's missing for migratory birds. You still have crop out there, but you don't have a diverse mix of annual forbs, which are going to have different nutritive uh, elements to them than just corn or soybeans. Soybeans, in fact, has a uh, digestive inhibitor, and animals that are eating that aren't going to get the most value out of that anyway. So um, those annual weeds are very, they have a lot of value on their own. They're excellent cover for rabbits, deer, pheasants, um, great for dick thistles when they're nesting, they'll lose that first year annual cover. Um, and then you've got residual cover the next spring, so you're going to have good control of erosion, wind erosion anyway with that. So, I mean, there's a number of reasons I don't like mowing in general. Well, it's something, it's a tool, but it's not something I just say, yes, you have to do this every day. There's no every, prescription. Yeah, it's not, a, it's not a prescription. You have a toolbox. Um, you don't have a specific recipe necessarily that you're going to do A, B, C, D. Um, you know, and again, this comes with experience. I've seen these often enough. My own, Randy Markle, who our, was our area wildlife manager at Wyndham, had gone away from mowing. Uh, the Nature Conservancy in Nebraska, a lot of their plantings, they've gotten away from mowing. And everybody has had excellent results. You know, um, So I just, I, I don't think it's necessary, and I think it wastes what can be a very valuable habitat in and of itself, which is that annual weed stage. So you're not just mowing to mow just for the sake of mowing. You have a purpose when you're doing it. Well, yeah, it. and anything that we're doing management-wise should have a purpose behind it. Because, again, you're using resources that you could be using on something else. There's an opportunity cost. If I have them out mowing, you know, annual weeds, we can't be out harvesting seed at that same time. So, no, we're trying to, I try to figure out what I want my endpoint to be, what are my goals, and then I use whatever tools I need to as I evaluate how the thing is progressing to figure out if I want to mow, if I want to do any chemical spraying, which I very rarely do anymore, um, even for thistles. If we do several years of mowing on those thistles, usually native plants will outcompete them to the point that they're not a problem anymore. There'll be thistles occasionally, but we can deal with them on a one-by-one -one basis. So, But no, just I, I, I don't do something for the point of doing it. It's like prescribed burning getting down the road, you know, the point of a prescribed burn should not be to make a field black. It should be to control woody vegetation. It should be to set back or enhance vegetation. You know, you have to, you're not going to use a hammer just to use a hammer when you need a saw. So. That was really I like good. It. That was a really good quote. Don't use a hammer, just use a hammer. Well, a hammer is so much more fun than a saw, let's be honest. Not when you're sawing somebody down when they're up in the tree. <laughs> Hope to that goodness, can be fun. I hope to goodness you've never actually done that. Oh my let's gosh. Let's talk about weeds. Yeah, let's talk about weeds. <laughs> or Forbes. Well, this is just it, is that I have issues with this term weeds, right? We we talk about it a lot. This term weeds is very broad, and it has, it again, it like the disturbance, it has a negative connotation associated with it. So Jeff likes to use the term Forbes. Megan, what do you, tell us a little bit about weeds. I don't like to, I mean, I still call them weeds because that's the common vernacular for them. Like, that's mm -hmm. that's the language, right? That's the trade. People know them as weeds. But I like to think of them as 
I put them into these categories, noxious weeds, problematic weeds, and I don't really care about you weed. And so really, those are kind of my three categories. And what I mean by that, for noxious weeds, we're required by state law to control those, either through mowing or spraying. We absolutely do that. Um, these are things uh, that are are on the Department of Ag. They maintain a list of noxious weeds because they create problems in the landscape. And so we wanna make sure that we control those. The second thing when I say problematic weeds, these are things that create aggressive competition with my new baby prairie that I'm trying to grow, my little baby prairie. Like I wanna make sure that I give it the best chance at survival. So when I have problematic weeds, like super aggressive weeds. Like for example, sometimes I tend to be a little bit more concerned about giant ragweed as an example. I'm not super concerned about it depending on the situation, but it has a really big leaf and it can provide mm -hmm. a lot of shade. And so it's one that if it's solid, that's when I start getting a little more concerned. I'm not concerned if I have a little bit of it in a planting. So Problem weeds, things that are very aggressive and are going to, things that tend to be clonal or create colonies, things like Sweet that. Sweet clover could be an issue. Sweet clover. It's something you have to look at. First year, it won't be a problem, but you better be out scouting because the second year, if it's very thick, you're going to have to find a way to deal with it. Um, I rarely find it that thick that I have to deal with it, although do we have one planting this year that it basically looks like it was like it was seeded, it was already in the seed bank there, and it's so thick, next spring we're going to have to get rid of it, we're going to have a solid canopy over the site. Right. So, yeah, there are those weeds that, if they're going to cause an actual problem for what you're trying to accomplish. Especially in that establishment phase, when your prairie is just getting started. You want to give it a boost so it gets the best foot forward. And... We're not just talking about when we say this is a problem weed, I don't want people to panic and be like, oh my gosh, I have six of these in my planting. What do I do? It's not just about no. having it. It's also there's an abundance metric here. They're a weed that can cause a problem. Right. They yeah. can cause a problem and we want to make sure we evaluate that effectively. And then the last thing where I just say, I don't care weed. I mean, this is the thing. We need to have, there's this great quote from Chris Helzer and I want to, just we mention him on the podcast all the time, and I want to give this quote. It's in his blog where he talks about um, weeds in a prairie and sort of changing our perspective. And Jeff's going to like this because this really aligns with his I, your ideology, if philosophy. you will, of what you were just My talking about. Your philosophy, how you do life. So what he says is, becoming less of a snob about the native status of plants has made my life a little less stressful. And this is from his Exotic Beauty blog post. And so what he's really saying there is we need to get away from this idea that prairies need to be perfect squares of only natives. That's not how they would have historically ever been. There is room, well, there's room for other species in there, right? They're not all the long-term perennials. Right. I mean, right. You're going to have, right. ideally, you'd have all natives. You know, historically, you'd have ragweed, you'd have annual sunflower. Um you know, but even some of the exotic things like lamb's quarters, which aren't terribly uh, competitive, and they're not competitive for long either. After the second year, you won't see any of them. So, right. yeah, Th there are some plants that learn to appreciate what they are good for. And, you know, don't worry about, I don't worry about perceptions too much. Um, what is it actually doing on the site and what is it actually going to cause?
And we have a purpose for this prairie, right? We're trying to create homes for wildlife. We're trying to make sure that we filter water. We're trying to make sure we build soil health. Like there's all these good things that prairies do for us and part of our connected landscape. And so we want to make sure that we're not over managing and making choices to the detriment of that prairie long term. So I'm going to read this second quote here. It's from Rachel Carson. And she says, our attitude towards plants is a singularly narrow one. If we see any immediate utility in a plant, we foster it. If for any reason we find its presence undesirable or merely a matter of indifference, we may condemn it to destruction forthwith. I just love that because this gets back to the whole thistle debate, which we probably, that's a podcast for another day Mm -hmm. that we'll talk about. But it's just like sometimes we have to change our idea of what a prairie is and where our tolerance levels are. And I think for me, as I moved through, as I moved through my career, I start to become more patient and realize that the prairie is more resilient. Even reconstructed prairies, if I give them the tools to succeed, well, they're going to come on. And a lot of the remnant prairies, those are the ones that have more quote-unquote weeds than seedings because they've over time gotten bluegrass and they've gotten quackgrass or other things. And you can't, if you are really um, obsessive about those, you can do more harm than good by getting rid of them. Exactly. And we want to first, what did we say? I think we said in an earlier podcast episode, first, do no harm. That's always the goal. It's very important. And I think that flipping your script on what a weed is and, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Weeds, maybe if we don't know that they're weeds, maybe they're beautiful. Maybe they're real. I love your face right now as you're like, maybe they're beautiful. Jess has crazy eyes and she's like, maybe they are. She, if well, you could see is... her face, she would convince well, you. It's and... an extreme example, but purple loose drive. I was just thinking that. People, I mean, they sell it, right? You, not anymore, I don't think. But you, it started off as a garden, a, a nursery plant. Um, and it, it's beautiful. It is. A lot of our invasive weeds are beautiful. Right. But we want to make sure that just because something is beautiful doesn't mean that it has a place in the a plant community here like purple loose strife wreaks havoc on our wetlands let's be clear there's a balance balance. that's why i said it's an extreme example yeah it is and really any any plant that doesn't have a natural control mechanism and we have native plants now that are like that red red cedar makes a beautiful plant for windbreak and you put it in the wrong spot and it's a weed so things in their right place and if they're not causing damage you know are they really worth the time and effort Right. Because you can always put time and effort into something else. So, Jeff, what's your biggest headache when it comes to this establishment phase? What's your What's the thing that gives you the most heartburn and keeps you up at night? There's Actually, usually... nothing really keeps me up at night about these. <laughs> he sleeps I'm, like a baby. <laughs> I, I'm honest. If you put good seed into contact with good soil, I have never, if you're patient, seen one of these fail. Sometimes they're well-established after two years. Sometimes it's four or five. But those plants do establish. Hmm. So I really don't worry about the establishment. Now, you can wonder what am I going to have, what's going to establish itself better in this seeding. Because like we said, it's going to be different every time. But you're going to end up having a native-dominated site. Um, The only reason you wouldn't is if you have severe infestations of uh, some woody plants. You can have box elder, ash cottonwood if you have seed sources near there or if you have wet sites and you have root canary grass Mm -hmm. but you should already be thinking about that ahead of time is that going to be an issue so on average soil i don't think it's a 
I don't worry about it establishing. This is why it's you... a patience thing. If you have patience, it will happen. This is why you go out for coffee. Pretty much. Yeah. Yep. This is the theme of the podcast. Hashtag patience. My aunt would love this if she was listening to this. I need to work on my patience. So let's talk a little bit about um, spraying. So we talked about mowing. We covered weeds. Let's talk about our approach to spraying. I have pretty strong opinions about this and I know you do too Jeff I'm gonna say my spiel and we can see if we're gonna duke it out like if there's gonna be an epic podcast battle or not so my deal with spray is that I feel like we often this is like our knee jerk to any invasive weed in the prairie or any non-native is we're gonna go out and we're gonna broadcast spray and we're gonna nip it in the bud and I feel like we this knee-jerk response is a disservice because anytime you're spraying, you're either going to be targeting, if you're using the selective herbicide, you're either going to be targeting your grasses or your forbs, and you're going to take out the good stuff that you just planted. I, I just feel like we tend to overspray to the detriment of our prairies because it's kind of a knee-jerk response. Of, and again, that goes back to ag- what were formerly the traditional agronomic way of dealing with a weed. You go out and you find the right chemical and you spray it. Um, you know, whatever's most time efficient is the best answer. And ecologically, that's not necessarily the case. You also have to keep in mind, whatever plant you get rid of, you're going to have an open spot there. And what is going to come in and fill that? You know, and you won't necessarily, you may kill the plant, but there may be seed in the ground. You know, we're taping this in the wonderful New Ulm Regional Headquarters and just outside the parking lot is a seeding that has crown vetch. And I've seen that crown vetch sprayed probably five times in my career. It disappears and it always comes back. You know, so you, if you have a species you really want to get rid of, you have to think ahead and play chess and say, well, if I get rid of this, what am I going to have in this site? If you have crown vetch, you're also going to have a lot of nitrogen in the soil. So you could have, you know, potentially you could have issues with canary grass or other grass weeds that are going to really thrive on that. Um, and if it gets wet enough, you could have, again, more nutrients for cattails. So spraying, I don't, I have a number of reasons that I don't go to spraying as my first things that I want to do. Um, herbicide is expensive, for one. You have to have, you know, uh, staff time to do that. And you're going to have all these um, uh, side casualties, whatever other plants are there. Because even the most selective herbicides are going to kill things that you want to keep. You know, just some are going to kill fewer of those things than others. Yeah. So. So sometimes it's the right tool and sometimes it's not. That's but right. you kind of have to evaluate it. You know, okay. do you want to use a chainsaw when you're, you know, making your birdhouse? Probably not. <laughs> Pick the right I think the, right the answer tool. is yes. I always want to use a chainsaw. <laughs> that is the answer to that. No, I'm just kidding. The answer is no. Well, and I like what you said. you have that old hockey mask with the, <laughs> with the movie. Yeah. Anyways. I also want to make sure... I follow up on your crown veg comment too. We tend to like get ourselves into these negative feedback loops where because I liked what you said about making sure that we think it through ahead of time. So if you kind of have an idea for what weeds are going to be a problem, this is when we talked about guilds and the seed mix part. If you don't have cool seasons, for example, Mm -hmm. desirable cool seasons in your mix, you have just set yourself up to fight a lifelong brome battle because you have a negative feedback loop. It doesn't matter how many times you spray and how many times you hand pull or whatever choice you're going to make or graze or whatever, you don't have anything positive in that system. So you need to set yourself up so you create positive feedback loops where you can generate good competition in your prairie. You know, and, and 
you know, when we look at guilds, a lot of time we're looking at functionally, what are they doing above ground? But you have to look at what the root systems are of these also. You know, when you have species that are going to throw down tap roots for the most part, silphiums, they're not going to compete as well against things that have creeping rhizomes, Canada thistle, uh, things like that. That's why I like to make sure when I'm thinking of guilds, I want to have things that are going to colonize and are going to fill in open spaces, things like prairie coreopsis, bed straw, things like that, that are going to do that. Um, but yeah, you've got to, you've got to think ahead. And in some cases you're going to have to say, well, I know I have this seed source here. I'm going to have to live with it. How am I going to deal with it long-term? You know, you have to look at, because if you had crown vetch for any period of time on a piece of ground, you're going to have crown vetch pretty much permanently. It's just how much are you going to have and based on what management are you going to do? Right. So, but those species too are ones that are, those are the problematic ones that I would want to spray. If I do have crown mm -hmm. vetch, I do want to get rid of that. If I have wild parsnip, anything that, and especially if you have a weed that's in a small amount in the local area, you don't want to give it a toehold to get going. But so there, and that's when I would be using herbicides if I needed to. Um, but yeah, usually that's, that's the second thing. And my third thing, first, first option is do nothing. If there's no real problem. Second is try to mow and then work on herbicide. That's great. There's so many things that we could talk about with establishment phase management. I mean, we just kind of dipped our toes in the water today with Jeff, but I would be remiss if I did not say the thing that Jessica Peterson, formerly known as Jessie, really, really enjoys. And what she really enjoys is keeping records and monitoring changes. Jeff, are you real, you're pretty good at keeping records, right? In my head, yes. Yes, all I, the records. About the, <laughs> the extent that I go with record keeping is I keep a running tab of what I've Plants I've seen and what's actually flowered, and roughly if I think they're abundant, rare, or I've only seen one or two of them. So I just kind of treat, keep track of what shows up there. I don't take detailed plot measurements like smarter people do. I just do what's easy. <laughs> but we do want you to take detailed records. And Jeff, actually, he has fantastic records in his head. You really do. Like, you know every single site and where they are and what you did and what year you did it in. But... I've got them in both CD and vinyl. Supervisor said, right? Like if you are hit by a bus tomorrow, what did he say? Yeah, my old boss used to say, well, you need to write all this data down because if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, who's going to know this? And I told him, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, I won't care. So, <laughs> but yes, it's very important for those who come after us and, and those those who are still learning to learn from our mistakes. And I make plenty. So yes, there's a lot to learn from me. This is one thing that Jeff does really good is he monitors and he does have very good memory. And when we can get him to write it down, everybody, it's just wonderful. Mm -hmm. It is wonderful. We're going to get him to write it down. Beats, write, re beats reading emails in the office. I'd rather be out looking for stuff. So I appreciate you looking for stuff. And, and it's important for people to go out and look at their seedings, not only looking mm -hmm. for weeds, but you want to figure out based on how much seed you had of a particular species, what you seeded it on, how is it responding? So if you want to tweak seed mixes, site prep later, you're getting, you're getting your own uh, adaptive management going on basically. You're getting the feedback loop of, well, this worked, this didn't. And then you, as time goes on, you evolve what you're doing. This leads us right into our next section. Let's science do the literature. All right, so this is part of the podcast where we talk about science. I'm geek now. That was cool. Jeff likes science. <laughs> he really does. 
He's my go-to for the science aspect. Boy, that's scary do. for you, then. It's not. It's true. You read it. You know you do. I only look at the pictures. So the first book has a lot of pictures that we're going we're gonna <laughs> to recommend today. And if books don't have pictures, I draw them at the margins. <laughs> it, the title is The Ecology and Management of Prairies in the Central United States by Chris Helzer, somebody we obviously admire. And this has um, a section in the book on prairie management. And although it does cover a lot of kind of longer term management, it covers some established phase management too. It has some guidance on, um, on management decisions that one might make. So that's just an overview for you. The second, is a, the second piece that I'd like to bring to the table is a paper by Williams, Jackson, and Smith. It's out of a group from the Tallgrass Prairie Center. Um, in Iowa from 2007. The title is Effects of Frequent Mowing on Survival and Persistence of Forbes Seeded into a Species Poor Grassland. So some of the things that I know Jeff thinks about and I think about and Megan when we read the literature are you know how many species were they planting right? Are we talking about a hundred species planting or are we talking about a five species planting? And when were they planting? And what rate? And where? Mm -hmm. Right so this is Iowa Perhaps a little different in parts than in some of the parts of Minnesota. They so, eat bullheads down there, so yeah, it's a little different. <laughs> so this was a planting that was established in 1999 in this paper, and there were 23 species of forbs that were broadcast into a recently burned sod at a rate of 350 viable seeds per meter squared. I don't know how that translates to seeds per square foot, Megan, but... Um, that's the gist of what's going on here. And they mo they monitored it for 25 years. So they did really frequent mowings of um, either they had a weekly mowing um, for one or two growing seasons. So that's really frequent mowings. Mm -hmm. But what they found was that forbs were twice as abundant in the mowed treatments than in the unmowed treatments. So, you know, perhaps in some cases, frequent mowing could be beneficial. Well, in this case, you're talking about established warm season grasses, not annual competition. So, and that's 10.7 square feet. There we go. Just for those trying to do the cup pound conversion. Very low. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So take that for what it's worth. Kind of interesting. One perspective. The last um, uh, article that I want to bring to the table is a paper that was actually, the study was done in Minnesota. It's about a um, herbicide Aminopyralid? Aminopyralid. Aminopyralid. I know. It's hard to say herbicide names. They're like um, Latin names. And they were looking at the effects of aminopyralid on... Now you sound really good. That's why they call it milestone. Canada <laughs> thistle. <laughs> so they, they, they um, were looking at the efficacy of aminopyralid on Canada thistle control in the prairie. keep saying it over and I know. over again to get it. Now I know it. <laughs> it's like clapping it out. Although they won't let you use it for Scrabble, though. <laughs> no, they won't. <laughs> so they found some really interesting things that may not be surprising, and in part is why Jeff. What was what was herbicide control one, two, or three? That, that was, was my last, three. the third third right. thing in the. So they found an increase box. in um, grass cover, so an increase in big blue stem and Indian grass, and they found a reduction in species richness, evenness, and diversity from this application. So kind of confirms using this as uh, your last resort. Mm -hmm. 
So um, a couple other things just to throw out there. The Prairie Reconstruction Initiative database is a really great resource for this um, establishment phase, kind of documenting management regime, management of this establishment phase, and just how it was established. Um, so that's a really great resource. And the North Dakota guide that we talked about in a previous podcast in the last episode also provides some really good information about establishment, um, much like Chris Helger's book. So. And for anybody that can travel, the Tallgrass mm -hmm. Restoration Network has a meeting every late summer fall. The TNC folks, a lot of agency people, this year they're meeting near Chicago in the forest preserves areas. And that, if you ever get a chance to go, that's a great opportunity to talk to a lot of people from differing backgrounds, different parts of the country, and get different perspectives on what uh, establishment and management ideas can be. I love that, because we're learning. This restoration right. is not a science where we have all the answers, because prairies and other habitats that we're trying to restore are so freaking complex. Ah, it's that technical word again. I know. I used it at our field day the other day. Mm -hmm. But they are. They're so complicated. And so we're never, I, I don't know if we'll ever get to the point where we have all the answers, but we can get better. And we're going to do that by an exchange of ideas. I, I said yesterday we were at a meeting, and if we're not better in 10 years than we are today, we have a problem. We have to keep improving on right. doing stuff. We're better now than we were 10 years ago. Right. So. We're working on it. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Jess. Take a hike. I think I will. It's a great day to take a hike. It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day whenever we talk prairie. So this is the part of our podcast where we highlight your amazing public lands where you get to go out and visit prairies. I think every time I'm singing that, I don't Can know why. Can you get a higher note with that? I can't if without oh. breaking. Like, I would just shatter Jessica's glasses. It would be really bad. And that'd be cool to see on the radio. <laughs> well, we would be remiss. Without being cool to see on the radio tonight. We would be remiss if during this podcast we did not highlight some of the awesome wildlife management areas that are in Jeff's area. And so he's going to take over and tell us a little bit about these first two properties that are um, your yep. public lands. Yeah, the Lamberton Wildlife Area and then the Dutch Charlie Creek Wildlife Area. Southeastern Redwood County, approximately two miles east of Lamberton on U.S. Highway 14, easy to find, uh, about two miles west of Sanborn. So uh, you take Highway 71 down to 14 or take 14 out of Mankato and just head west. Um, Lamberton area is now just shy of 1,400 acres. Dutch Charlie, which is only a mile south of there, is another 180 acres. So there's a big chunk of prairie uh, grassland there. Lamberton is built around a large um, wetland complex with a creek, basically a meandering creek running through it and the grassland surrounding it. The western part of the WMA is the newest part and that has some of the newer restorations so they've got a lot more forbs in them um, and they're right next to hot roads, easy to get to. Great place to go out and just wander around. One of them, which is off of Jade Avenue in Redwood County, if you look through um, Explore Nicolet, or Nicolette as they say where I come from, um, he reported leaving the Cottonwood River near the mouth of Dutch Charlie Creek, heading northwest, and it gives you this great view of the Buffalo Ridge, which is probably 8, 10 miles to the south. Well, as dear as I can figure, it's that hill would have been part of the wildlife area. 
Otherwise, you'd had to walk through a bunch of sloughs, which he didn't mention. So you can go out on this area, really diverse prairie planting, and get just a really wide, wide-ranging view all the way south to the Buffalo Ridge. Uh, lots of wind towers to see now, but apparently was used for scouting buffalo a long time ago by the folks that Nick Lay ran into. Um, so there's some history, and it's also a really good prairie to get out and talk, to, to walk around in. And that Lamberton Wildlife Management Area, right, that's a legacy track for us. Some of it is, yeah. Probably half that unit was bought with legacy money. The original piece was bought in the 1960s. We added onto it periodically. But uh, starting after the legacy amendment passed in uh, 2008, we started buying additional tracks. Dutch Charlie Creek was entirely bought with LSOHC money. And the newer tracks on Lamberton were bought with LSOHC money. And the restoration, a lot of the management has been paid for by that also. And not only is there prairie, but there's a restored savanna on Dutch Charlie Creek. It's in the process right. of getting, yep. In the process. And basically what we've got there is we had an old um, prairie reconstruction from the uh, CRP era. We did some interseeding. And we also planted some oak trees on there, which are at this point about eight years old. So they're not too impressive yet. You're going to look, I mean, this is something that's going to be, take your grandkids there. It'll look really nice. That's if you're 10 years old now. So yep. it's going to be a while, but it's on its way. Yeah. Bur oak trees with some native grass and four understory. My favorite tree, bur oaks. While you're out there, you can also, when you're in Brown County, you can check out the Cottonwood River Prairie Scientific and Natural Area. This actually has three units, so it's it pretty much extends about three, like across three miles of Brown County. So they've got three management units. They're called the Prairie Champion Unit to the west, and then they've got the Prairie Sky Unit to the east, and then they've got a narrow railroad prairie stretching between them. So you can see lots of different kinds of prairie. You can get remnants of dry sand gravel prairie. You can get wet prairie, music prairie, and then a large prairie wetland complex. So the ridge part of the unit offers these like really amazing sweeping views, vistas, and you can also check out a population of federally threatened prairie bush clover mm -hmm. so that's a rare plant that we have <laughs> that's how we talk about rare plants mm -hmm. you should see it it's impressive <laughs> so there is a population out there and there's also a really good population of past flowers there so depending on what the management was how short the grass is here's the short grass are going to be really good past flower blooming on the the northwestern unit there at um, Cottonwood River. We've also got purple coneflower, lead plant, pecoon, blazing stars. I just and a decent it. spot to find uh, upland sandpipers, plenty of meadow larks out there, which aren't at all common anymore. And you might even see northern harriers. And during migration, you'll have uh, short-eared owls move through there as well. Short-eared owls are my favorite too. Bur oaks and short-eared owls, that's what makes my day. You laugh, Jessica, but those things are two of my favorite things. Don't make me sing the song. I'll do it. So as always, don't forget to check out the DNR Recreation Compass to find more of your amazing public lands to visit. That's where you can see all of these units that we've talked about today. You're welcome to go out there anytime and wander because they are part of your public heritage. So next time, we are going to catch you on the Prairie Pod where we're going to talk about pheasants, feathers, and guns. 
we're going to have the most guest speakers that we've ever had, right, Jess? That's right. We're going to have the most. So we're going to be joined by Nicole Davros, who's the group leader for the Farmland Wildlife Population Research Group. And then with her, Lindsay Messinger, who's the wildlife research biologist. They're going to talk to us a little bit about pheasant research and the status of these wily birds in the state of Minnesota. They are going to be joined by Mike Warland, our not one of our non-game wildlife biologists, where he's going to talk about grassland birds, and he's going to share his prime tip for what you can do to help keep grassland birds on the landscape. You're not going to want to miss it because there's lots of laughs, lots of fun, and as always, lots of really good information. Jeff, thanks so much for being here. It is the highlight of my last two and a half hours. <laughs> That's high praise from Jeff, as always. We could expect nothing less from you. Jeff, Thank you much. It was a pleasure to be here with you, too. I've enjoyed it. I've learned things, as always. As always. There's so much to learn. Till next time. Bye, Jess. Check you later.